it's uh it's just fun to celebrate our culture once in a while and just uh join in a little bit of fun that we might have with each other. So I know that there are people that have other loyalties to other football teams and baseball teams and that's okay because we're a body, right? <laughs> we're a church. So I'd like to today begin a series of messages from uh, the book of Ephesians chapter 4. I originally thought that I would uh, be able to cover these 16 verses in two sermons. And at 7.30 this morning, I became convinced that I needed to do it in three. And so I'm going to be expanding my message, my series of messages into three rather than two. And so today, um, I'm going to begin a model of how to do church, be who we are, period. And then... Uh, We'll do and then grow in two weeks. And then next week, we'll do help one another succeed. And uh, I thought it would be good for us to just have an outline of how this passage uh, flows together. So if you have in your bulletins an insert where I have given an outline of these um, messages. And uh, I'd like to read through Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 16, with this outline in mind as our guide. And then you can see where I'm headed in these next, uh, today and the next two weeks. Uh, With one correction on this page, uh, I so want to be perfect um, as a pastor. uh, And I am not. And so there's a mistake on this outline. Uh, Under verse 2, if you have a pen, cross out what I wrote and replace it with, this is a life of. Okay, You know how you do cut and paste on computers? Well, evidently I cut and pasted the wrong thing under verse 2. And so it should say, this is a life of, rather than keep maintaining the unity of the Spirit through. So I, uh, I didn't do that as well as I wanted to, but... Hopefully you'll give me your grace. So let's read through verses 1 through 16 and just see how this passage unfolds. And then you'll see the title and the emphasis of each of my messages today, next week, and the following. Ephesians 4.1 As a prisoner of the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. That's verse 1. And verse 2 is... This is a life of, verse 2, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. And then verse 3 is what I think is the main passage of the first six verses. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. I'll elaborate a little bit more on that as I go into my message. Beginning with verse 4, there's a section of these next two verses. They all fit together. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is, like we just sang today, over all, through all, and in all. That's the message for today, be who we are. Next week, I'm going to deal with verses 7 to 12, which is the process 
ministry diversity help each other succeed. Begin with verse 7. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. Notice it's Christ's decision who gets what gift, not ours. He makes that decision. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. And we'll see next week that I think gifts is referring to the people are the gift to the church. The gifted people are the gifts to the church. And then there's a parenthesis. Paul says, and what does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower uh, earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher to all, than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. I'm going to suggest that that is a verse that just talks about the incarnation and then the resurrection. Verse 11. Here's the part where help one another succeed. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers. Why? To equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ might be built up. And then verse 13 is kind of a transition verse. And I think that summarizes the message for next week and it introduces the the next message. Until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. I think that's talking about our final state in heaven. the, The real unity that we'll face in heaven. But then we have something in the meantime... And that's the second part of verse 13 and verses 14 through 16, which is the message of two weeks from now. Until we become mature, not only individually, but I think also a mature body, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching, by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. That'll be my first point two weeks from now. Verse 15, Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is, Christ. And so God wants our body to grow in maturity. And then verse 16 For him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love. And here's the marriage of the corporate and the individual. As each part does its work. And so we as individuals come together for the good of the body, but in order for the body to be built up, we have to do our part. And so that's what we'll talk about in two weeks. So this is how this passage unfolds. And so for today, I want to introduce the idea that as a Christian body, as a local church, God wants us to be who we are. Um, You can choose your friends, but you can't choose your family. We are a family. So how do we Look at being a family. Well, I would suggest, as I said earlier, that verse 3 is the main thought of verses 1 through 6. Maintain the unity of the local church. Now, what do I mean by unity? 
Well, if you think of a symphony orchestra, you'll know that a symphony orchestra is made up of lots of different instruments. And each of those instruments produces a different sound, and they are organized in sections of the orchestra. And so one section of the orchestra might have a certain melody and rhythm, and then another section of the orchestra might have another melody and another rhythm, but because they work together, they're unified, they come together and produce a beautiful sound of a symphony piece. Um, The difference between unity and uniformity is illustrated in that orchestra. You see, unity is all working together for the same goal. Uniformity means everyone does the same thing. And I would suggest that uniformity um, is a threat to unity. Now, I see there are two ways of looking at this. One is individualism. Uh, Only one instrument in the orchestra matters. My instrument. That's uniformity. That's individualism. Or we might say collectivism. I think that's another. In other words, requiring every instrument in the orchestra to play the same note and the same rhythm. That's not a symphony orchestra. That's an elementary school band. (laughs) Right? You've been to elementary school band concerts? They're wonderful. Kids are just learning. They all play the same note and the same instrument. But God wants us to be a mature body. He wants to grow us into a symphony orchestra for his honor and for his glory. And we'll deal with the solution to both individualism and collectivism by understanding the church is a body. We are a body of believers. Each part is different. Each one has equal value equal significance. Each part is unique, but makes a valuable contribution to the whole, and the idea of body ensures that we are all valued, and that we understand that we are part of one another, that we depend on one another, within our own contribution being critical to the health of the whole. And we'll talk a lot about body next week in the following week. So unity of the body is of central significance to this entire passage. Uh, Paul mentions the word body three times in these 16 verses, and I think it's the focus of what he is trying to do. But verse 3 is a remarkable verse because it reminds us that our unity, our symphony sound, comes from the Holy Spirit who brings forth our salvation through the cross and resurrection of Jesus who is our peace. I want you to turn one page back in Ephesians 4 to chapter 2 of Ephesians. And I want you to see what happened to my... Oh, here it is. I want you to see something very interesting in chapter 2, beginning with verse 14. It says, His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. This is something that's already been done. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility, Jews and Gentiles, people who are different from one another. 
He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. This is not a unity that we create. This is a unity that has already been created. Our responsibility, as Paul says clearly back in chapter 4, verse 3, it's something that is already there. Our responsibility is maintain it. Our responsibility is to nurture it and demonstrate it. Our responsibility is to visibly take what God has already done and visibly demonstrate it and show it to the world. And this is really great news. Because as we nurture a local church, we don't have to think up something new. We don't have to think up all kinds of original stuff. We don't have to do something that's never been done before. We don't have to get special training and go to a seminar or go to graduate school. All those things would help, but that's not the point. The point is, is that we already have what Paul clearly says, the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It's already done. We are already a family. Even though there might be squabbles, even though we might not be best friends with everybody, but because of what Jesus did on the cross, we have a unity in the Spirit through the bond of peace. Our responsibility is not to attain unity. Our responsibility is to maintain the unity. I think that's great news. Verse 3 tells us that there's an urgency to maintain. Look at verse 3. Make Every effort. This word means that we've got to be zealous about maintaining the unity of the Spirit that's already there. It needs to be a top priority. Take great pains to do it. Why does Paul make such a big deal about this? Because there are serious threats to the unity of of the, of the spirit in the bond of peace. One scholar suggests that disunity in the local church is a crisis. So Paul tells us to make it a top priority. Note, make every effort. Every effort. Work really hard at it. Don't leave any stone unturned. With this phrase, Paul acknowledges that church ministry sometimes is messy. It's hard. Local church has sinful people with sinful leaders and sinful pastors. So we need to work hard at maintaining the unity that God has already created. Now this is a given. It's no surprise that it's difficult. But it's not the end of the world that it's difficult. It's a normal thing to have to make efforts to maintain and demonstrate the unity of the Spirit. In fact, I believe we need to be proactive in maintaining this unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So I'd like to suggest a summary principle 
A local church maintains unity by being a gospel-centered church. And by gospel, I mean more than the bridge illustration and the Romans road. That's part of the gospel. What I mean by gospel is following after Jesus as a disciple and understanding the breadth of how that impacts our lives. Grace instead of works, but grace that works. Personal significance in our identity in Jesus. A joyful lifestyle of repentance. Priority of missions. Priority of people. Priority of community. Our mission statement summarizes this beautifully. Connecting people to Jesus, growing to be like him, and serving others. This is what I mean by gospel-centered church. Now, where is that found in the text? Well, I'd like to suggest to you that's found in verse 1. Verse 1 tells us, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you, live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Live a life worthy of the gospel. Well, how do I know he says worthy of the gospel? Well, chapters 1 through 3 in Romans outline the gospel. And so chapter 4 is the application of the gospel. And he is saying, live your life worthy of the gospel, your calling. So I would suggest that the gospel needs to be our priority. Now, I love to watch football, and so I don't know if you were watching the national championship game earlier last week, and you saw one of the football players do something, and he got ejected from the game for doing it. Remember that? He used his helmet as a spear, and man, he nailed the guy. He just, boom, nailed the guy, and he speared a guy, and not only was it a penalty, but he got kicked out of the game. Why make such a big deal about that? Well, you know, people who love the game of football realize that if parents see that their children can be subject to people spearing one another, they're not going to let their kids go out for football. The game will pass away. We have to work hard as a football uh, ethic to maintain and preserve the game of football. So there's rules that people have to submit to. Not because just the game between Clemson and LSU, not because they were doing a championship game in 2020, but for the sake of football in general. That's the same idea as why Paul is telling us be a gospel-centered church for the sake of the gospel. Because if we're not a gospel-centered church, and if we demonstrate something other than the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, guess what's going to be impacted? The message of the gospel. So for the sake of the gospel, we become a gospel-centered church. For the sake of the gospel, everything we do, the gospel is priority. Everything that we plan, all the ways that we behave, Paul says, live a life worthy of the gospel. So I would suggest to you from time to time that it's appropriate for us to ask ourselves, is my behavior worthy of the gospel? 
the way I'm treating my wife or my husband or the way that I'm acting on the job or the way I'm acting in community? And is that worthy of the gospel? Why is that important? Well, for the sake of the gospel, I need to ask that question. And then as a local church, is the way we're behaving in our church worthy of the gospel? Are our conversations is the way that we are thinking things, the way we worship, or the way we interact at meetings, is that worthy of the gospel? So what is it that can help us live our lives in a way that is worthy of the gospel? And there are two categories, real, quick, real quickly. Number one, verse two, we value the gospel above ourselves. That's a life worthy of the gospel. We value the gospel above ourselves. Verse 2 says that we are humble and gentle and patient, bearing one another in love. Jesus is the model of humility. He washed the disciples' feet. Jesus is the model of gentleness. Matthew 11 says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. Why? For I am meek and gentle of heart. The only verse in the Bible that describes his temperament. Jesus is the model of being patient with one another. I mean, how many times in the Gospels does Jesus say, Oh, you disciples, how long do I have to put up with you? Remember that when he says that? And what he is doing is he's saying, I need to bear with you. Literally, I need to put up with you. Well, we have to put up with each other, brothers and sisters. You mean I have to put up with him? Yeah. You mean I have to put up with that? Yeah. Why? For the sake of the gospel. For the sake of the gospel. To dwell above with saints of love we love, oh, that will be glory. But to dwell below with the saints we know, well, that's another story. Let's be a gospel-centered church and maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace by putting others and putting the gospel above ourselves. Second, value gospel truth above other truth. Value gospel truth above other truth. I see that in verses 4 to 6. There are many disciplines in life that present truth. Science has truth. Business has truth. Engineering has truth. Medicine has truth. Logic has truth. And there's much we can learn from studying a wide range of disciplines. Learning many things that are true that help us to be more effective in life, even as a church. But, if one of those truths conflict with gospel truth, we stand with the gospel truth. Because it's the gospel of Jesus that has made us one. And Paul says, make every effort to maintain and demonstrate the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, Paul doesn't just tell us, uh, doesn't just let us decide um, what is truth. He gives us seven categories of truth in these verses. 
real quickly. They're organized around the persons of the Trinity. Regarding to one spirit, he says, there is one body created by the one spirit. You see that? Then there is one hope. There is one hope that we are working towards, that we are holding on. There is one hope, and that's eternal life in heaven through Jesus. And then he refers to Jesus, the Lord. He says that there is one Lord. There is one Lord. With the gospel truth, we stand united in contrast to all other world views about Jesus. There is one Lord. There is one faith in Jesus. There is one way to go to the Father. It's through the one Lord Jesus. And there is one baptism. We only get baptism in the name of one Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. There's only one. And see, with this word one, it says that there's only one. And then as we sang, there is one God and Father who is over all, in all, through all, and of all. Now, what do we do when our world pushes back against this one? And we do. We get, let, me, let me just share you a verse of Scripture that tells us how to deal with a culture that really doesn't like this idea of Christians saying that there's only one way. Romans chapter 12. If you have your Bibles, open them with me to Romans chapter 12. In this section of Scripture, Paul advises us on how to act towards one another. And then beginning with verse 14, he advises us on how to act towards those who push back against us. Listen to what he says, and here's how we act in a culture that doesn't like the word one that we hold on to. Bless those who persecute you. Okay? Bless and do not curse. That's how you deal with culture when it pushes back. Bless. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Yeah. Do that with our culture. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Don't be conceited. But Christians, we better not walk around in the world thinking that we're better than anybody else. We're not. Verse 17. Don't repay evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live in peace. God doesn't want us as a church to be a contentious people. He doesn't want that. Be at peace. Don't take revenge, my dear friends. Believe room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine. I will revenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to eat. Doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. And back in the first century, people would live on streets that were very narrow and people would carry coals on their head to help their fires to get to 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 um, to stay warm and to cook with. And if their fire went out, they'd go to their next door neighbor. They'd borrow some embers and they'd put them on a thing and carry them on their head. And when people walked down the street, people could go over the head and put burning coals on their head. It's a way to help them 
and to encourage them and provide for them. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil by doing good. That's the way we maintain the unity doctrinally that holds us together, that makes us who we are. Who we are is because there's one spirit, there's one body, there's, there's one hope, there's one Lord, there's one faith, there's one baptism, there's one God and Father. And that, that makes us who we are, that makes us unified. And the way that we deal with cultural pushback has been outlined for us in Romans chapter 12. See, that's what I would suggest is a way for us to be a gospel-centered church. To be thinking about these practices of denying ourselves and putting the gospel above ourselves. To maintain the gospel truths. To hold on to the gospel even when it might conflict with other truth. So I'd like to just give a practical thing for us to think about. Um, as I conclude today. Um, Patrick Lencioni is a business consultant, and he wrote a book called The Five Dysfunctions of Team. And if we can kind of think of the body of Christ as a team, okay, we work together as a team, right? He talks about how we nurture a healthy team. Number one, establish trust. Establish trust. And how do we establish trust? Well, you read people that say, this is how you establish trust. Very biblical. Transparency, humility, authenticity, intentionality. Does that sound familiar? It's right out of the text of Ephesians 4. Build trust as you demonstrate the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. These are things that our search committee are interviewing towards. We're asking our candidates whether or not we can, we ask them questions that reveal whether they're transparent, whether they're humble, whether they're authentic. It's very important. Why? Because we have to trust each other. Because God has made us one, we need to work hard at maintaining and developing that oneness by nurturing trust. Once we have trust, Lencioni says, that will give you then the freedom to discuss differing points of view. Because you'll be able to trust each other in the midst of talking, well, I don't agree with that. Well, I don't agree with that. Well, but I know I trust you enough to tell you I don't agree with that. (laughs) And that's important for us to do that. Where is that found in the text? Well, humble, authentic, loving. And then he says, once you do that, You've got to make sure that you have a steadfast commitment to each other. And what's our commitment? Making every effort to work hard at demonstrating the unity of the Spirit in a bond of peace. We've got to be committed to it. We don't quit. We don't give up. We still work at demonstrating the unity that we are. And then we have mutually accepted accountability. And we practice accountability. Well, that's verses 4 to 6. The doctrines, the oneness, the one spirit, the one body, the one faith, the one. That's our accountability. And finally, a clear vision. 
we've got an idea where we're headed. Well, where are we headed? Well, hopefully we're headed towards being a gospel-centered church as outlined by our mission statement. You see, once we nurture these aspects of team, they're all biblical things. What happens to us as a church? We do exactly what Paul says. We maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. That's a gospel-centered church. Brethren, let's make every effort to maintain that, to demonstrate it. And next week, we're going to learn how to help each other succeed in maintaining the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Father in heaven, thank you for this clear admonition from you. And Lord, we, we could talk days about these ideas and these concepts. But help us, Lord, to realize that we're a family. You've created us a family. And actually, Lord, I really believe you expect us to work hard at maintaining our family identity. And you ask us to put the gospel first, above ourselves, above any other truth, and to learn how to build body teamwork. Help us be willing to have those conversations, lovingly putting you first and basking in the joy of knowing that you have done for us what we could never do for ourselves. You have made us unified in the spirit, clothed in the bond of peace. What a joy to be part of your church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.